Welcome to Almost Cooperstown. This is episode six, which is actually we're kind of surprised we've even gotten this far. But after last week's kind of heavy topic going over the steroid guys and just all of the things that they represent for baseball and them going into the Hall of Fame, we wanted to kind of take a break this week and talk about something a little bit more fun and some of the the wackier side of baseball, really, just some of the weirder things that have happened throughout the game. And I certainly know I kind of got my start. Some of the stories I've actually pulled is from this. When I was a kid, you gave me the uh, Furman Bisher's Strange But True Baseball Stories. One of my favorite books. Yeah, I read that thing. Co- I, I read that thing so much the cover started falling off, but that could have also been because I was like 50 years old at that point or something. But uh, there was just so many great things. And it's it's so interesting because baseball has had such a long history and because there have been so many players and so many games, you have a lot more chances for just weird things to have happened and interesting things. And so we kind of wanted to talk about that today. So um, I'll go first. And um, my first segment is called Birds in Baseball. Uh, and as we all know, there are two uh, major league teams that have bird names. Oh, the Orioles and the Blue Jays, obviously. Right. And uh, this first uh, example actually is a guy who played for uh, the Blue Jays. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, and that would be Randy Johnson. And everybody has seen the famous the famous bird explosion, right? Yeah. And him throwing a pitch that reputed to be at 100 miles an hour. What I didn't know when I looked at it is this was a spring training game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, okay, so I, I thought it was – for some reason I thought because he was a Blue Jay. And actually at the time he was an Arizona Diamondback mm-hmm. in the year the Arizona Diamondbacks won the World Series. A portent of something. Exactly. It so. would have been more of a portent had they ended up beating the Orioles and the Blue Jays in the World Series. There would have been something kind of weirdly fitting about that. So you're in Tucson, Arizona in March of uh, uh, 2001 and a giant named Cal- Calvin Murray who I never heard mm-hmm. of is only famous because he was at the plate yeah. when, when Randy <laughs> – He's not really famous for anything about this play. He was just there. <laughs> and he, he throws it. And the bird, if you just, it, it probably video does this, uh, you know. You need to, see, the video is just perfect. Like, yeah. you just see the pitch coming. And you don't even see the bird until you see the poof of feathers. So it ended up being an umpire ruled no pitch, which is a, uh, a, a play in baseball. One of the most famous no pitch calls in baseball history. The ball was near home plate when it hit the bird. After the pitch hit the bird, the ball was ruled dead. And the bird was ruled dead. <laughs> This no-pitch call is so well-known that there are more Google search results for Randy Johnson Bird than there are for Randy Johnson Baseball. Which, because it, it was the kind of thing everybody, because then, because of the other one, if I remember, I think I think that's why this one got in particular. I well, don't know the other one as well, though. I've got another Bird story for you, but this mm. one took place at Shea Stadium. At Shea Stadium. At Shea Stadium, April 15th, 1987, tax day. Uh, so early season game, Braves at Mets. Brave outfielder Dion James hits a routine fly ball, which struck a dove flying across the outfield. The dove fell to the ground, dying on impact, and James stood on second base with a double. Shortstop for the Mets, Rafael Santana, collected the bird and gave it to the ball girl. The ball girl then deposited the bird underneath the stands. Now, what I really find funny is the Chicago Tribune uh, beat writer Bernie Linsicum and why he's covering a Braves-Mets game, I don't know. Yeah, yeah this is kind of a weird thing. It's not I know. Yeah, yeah, Deion James of Atlanta. This. So he writes, Deion James of Atlanta, the assailant, was awarded a double on the play, which, of course, was entirely appropriate since the bird in the hand is worth two on the bases. <laughs> Kevin McReynolds, the Mets outfielder, would later explain that he lost the ball in the feathers, a seldom-used excuse even by a Cub outfielder. <laughs> 
The incident made all the papers and news shows, although one could sympathize with the poor, broken bird, one had to be impressed by James's accuracy. Yeah, I mean, that's the chance of that. Like, think about it. It's happened once. How many line drives? I, I think it's the balls? only time a batted ball hit a bird exactly. in a game. Right, right. So um, this is not an exact science, apparently. The dove was mistaken for a pigeon. This is New York, of course. <laughs> so it may have died of natural causes. <laughs> Flying rats. So the last one I have is the one that I think you were alluding to before, and that's the famous August 4th, 1983 game in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this was... Um not in the Sky Dome yet, so this is before the Sky Dome. It's an before? exhibition stadium. Um, I did not know that there was a stadium before the right, Sky right. Dome. Right, I don't know. The, uh, the Jays came into the league in 77. This is only six years later in 83. Um, and, you know, in the in the uh, August game, you have uh, Dave Steeb on the mound for Toronto mm -hmm. and a guy named Shane Rawley on the mound for the Yankees. Don't know either one of them. Dave, you don't know Dave Steve. You should know Dave Steve. I, I probably – it's the kind of thing where I'm like, I looked at the stats and looked at the player. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of him at some point, but I, I have no Well, more him. than heard of him because he probably could have been on our list as guys who are almost. He was that good. Yeah, wow. He was that good. Anyway, Shane Rawley and Dave Steve this day would both pitch complete games. Hmm. Uh, it's not not as uncommon back then, but so it's a, it was a big game. It was a big crowd. The Yankees were four games back. The Blue Jays were one game out. That was the year in '83 that the Orioles won the World Series. So mm. I'll guess that they were in first place at this point. And Dave Winfield is playing for the Yankees. Ironically, later on he would drive in the winning run in the 11th inning of the '92 World Series with the Blue Jays. Huh. Uh, anyway, before the bottom of the fifth, Winfield's in the outfield finishing up his warm up tosses, and he throws a one bounce 80 footer to the ball boy, and it hits. Yes, it kills a seagull who had been loitering on the field for about three innings. In fact, after the game, some of the players said they thought the bird looked a little sick and it wasn't well, so th there was something wrong with the bird. And after the game, I don't know if they do bird autopsies or not, but they found that the bird was, in fact, sick. Um, and so the Blue Jay fans start booing Winfield, and they're throwing rubber balls at him. Because they're thinking like, he did it on purpose. Well, and the game ended up being nothing special, as I said. And Raleigh wins the game 3-1. to one. Mm -hmm. um, And after the game, get the cuffs, get the cuffs, says Oscar Gamble, his teammate, there, as, he, as Winfield walks into the, um, into the locker room with his hands up. And instead of discussing the hot at bat, uh, hot bats and catching at the wall and his league leading 15 homers, reporters, of course, have to ask Winfield about the ball and the seagull. Sincerely, I would never hit an animal on purpose. It wasn't intentional. Um, and he, to he told the police the same thing. Uh, and then disbelief comes. I could understand the fuss if it was a blue jay, but it was just a gate-crashing seagull, said Greg Nettles. <laughs> Boy, they really hate us up here, said Goose And For Winfield's intent... This is my favorite. This is my favorite. Manager Billy Martin is particularly combative. Ridiculous! That's the first time Winfield's hit the cutoff man all year. <laughs> they can never get me get me for pine tour when they're talking about dead seagulls, alluding to the conf the confrontation that happened only 11 days before the pine tar That's so wild that those two things happened so close together. That, right? Yeah. Right? So, and of course, Martin says, I'll tell you one thing. When Toronto comes to New York the next week, we're going to get there. Four starting pitchers arrested, and we're going to have somebody call the police and say they were molested in a hotel. <laughs> After the game, the police question Winfield, who denies trying to hit the bird or any animal for that matter, yet the police charge him with causing unnecessary suffering of an animal. <laughs> Punishable by six months or a $500 fine. Now, there's a big difference between six months in jail and five. Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a what? This I guess Canada. it's like, I don't know, degrees of severity. Uh, like. I don't know. Uh, and the Toronto general manager, Pat Gillick, who famous, you know, GM, yeah. uh, ends up paying the fine. And Winfield gets released. 
And and basically, he later on, Winfield went and donated a, a, a picture to Toronto. With, you know, he he was acknowledged this happened afterwards. Yeah. So, so like, he um, didn't just like he didn't just kind of like let it slide. And then he won the World Series for him with a game winning double in in ninety two. So I, he's fine. I'm pretty sure the yeah, people of Toronto would uh, trade a seagull for a World Series every single time. <laughs> so so that's my uh, my threesome in birds in baseball. Birds in baseball. Well, continuing the animal vibe, I have a kind of an interesting story. Uh, this was this was a, one of the things that was from that Furman Fisher book, and I just always loved it as a kid, and I thought it was just really interesting. So back in the 30s, there was a uh, player in the Piedmont League, which was one of the minor leagues named Roberto Ortiz, who actually got his career – he was a Cuban, and he got his career started in Cuba playing barefoot. <laughs> and so he, he came to America, and he's playing in this league. It's 1941. And he's playing, uh, he's playing, I think he's an outfielder for them. And he had a dog, and he would bring the dog with him to the games. And so he would just tie up the dog, and he would go and play the game, and after the game, go collect the dog and head on home. I guess one day he did not tie the dog up well, particularly enough. So in the ninth inning, he hits a ball out into the outfield, and he's coming around second base. And the dog comes tearing in from the outfield and starts running around the bases with Roberto Ortiz. And... What really makes this story is that the, then the next day in the box store, the guy that was doing the, the reporting put a little Y in the in the box score for yellow dog that ran around the bases with Ortiz at night. That's the best part yeah. of all this. If he didn't put it in the box score, right, it right. wouldn't have meant as much. But the fact that he got the dog in the box score, he, he ended up heading over to the Mexican League. Ortiz never made the majors. But it's like that dog made the box score. And I think that's what makes it. And uh, one of the things that I remember reading, because I, I wore this book out, so um, is that I think Bisher, Furman Bisher, wrote that you know he slid into third base and the dog slides too into third base at the same time the player does. And I just the, the, the picture of the dog sliding and the dirt going up. And yeah, it's like I don't know if I believe that. Right, I right, hope right, it's right. true because it makes the story ten times better. Right, but I just don't know if that that that's the part where I'm like, <laughs> that the, these unverified things sometimes you know you have somebody's account and Furman Bisher, one of the great sports writers of all time, so. I'll take him at his word. At his, yeah, exactly. It's more just like the, oh, man, that's just so sensational. It's like it's like those Billy Martin quotes sometimes. Like, There's no way he actually right, said came up that. with that off the top of his head. Yeah. And I know that's not true. Because Hasn't hit the cutoff man yeah, all year. Perfect. That's brilliant. That's, yeah. like per- <laughs> like, that's like comedy writing almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too good. Um, so I wanted to um, go to a, a, a guy who's known by a lot of guys my age, uh, Bill Spaceman Lee. And I don't know if you've heard much about the Spaceman. Not much. Well, I'll, I'll give you because I, I had to look up a little bit because I, I, you know, I kind of knew him as a guy who was he was involved with maybe marijuana or drugs, and he was kind of an iconoclast. But I had to go kind of deep in, in to find what was about mm-hmm. uh, what he was about. And uh, in addition to finding out that he went to USC, my alma mater, oh, and played on a national championship team in 1968. Oh wow, that. Now we can elevate him a bit well, more. Well, we, we could do a whole, you know, uh, 10 minutes on all the USC baseball players, including Randy Johnson, uh, who played in the major leagues. But Billy, from a baseball perspective, right, you have to think about it as, you know, was he a good enough player to warrant any kind of attention? Well, he had a career war of 22 and 14 major league seasons. So that nothing, certainly doesn't I put, mean, not bad, but not anything you would be like, oh, this guy. He had some good years for the Red Sox, uh, winning 51 games for them in 1973 to 75. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say that's pretty good. <laughs> that's about seventeen a year. That was, in fact, he won seventeen each of those years, uh, and those were good, close but no cigar Red Sox teams because the A's were winning World Series from seventy two to seventy four, and then you had the Reds, and and the Red Sox lost that seventy five series uh, to the Reds, and Bill Lee started two games in the nineteen seventy five World Series. I 
didn't really remember that. I mean, but yeah, that, that that speaks to that he wasn't just... He, he was right. He had 119 wins. He wasn't a guy that was just known for being weak. For a while, I think he had the third most starts for a Red Sox left-hander in the history of the franchise. Pretty good. has been a long, long franchise. So he was traded after the 78 season to the Expos, and he bade farewell to Boston by saying, who wants to be with a team that'll go down in history alongside the 64 Phillies and the 67 Arabs? Wait, what? Okay, so the 64 Phillies, one of the great choking teams of all time, lost the pennant. Gene Mark was the manager, and they choked and lost. The 67 Arabs fought the war against the Israelis and obviously got slaughtered. So th- that, that's the kind of iconoclast. I mean, that's a reference. Like that, That's a reference. Uh, and he won 16 games for the Expos in 79. And what I thought was interesting, he was named the left-hander of the year. Like, they would give awards for that by that's sporting a, that's news. It's a very strangely specific award. Over Steve Carlton. So now you got a guy who is a Hall of Fame pitcher that he did that. And then in the 80 season, he caused more controversy by admitting to using marijuana. And so this lands him on the cover of High Times magazine. Okay. Then he gets called into the commissioner's office, Bowie Kuhn. Uh, and he said he didn't smoke the job, the drug. He just put it on his pancakes. Wait, what? <laughs> so, like, it's one of those stories where you're like, I guess that could maybe work on, like, a guy that maybe has no idea what's going on. Like, he's like, oh, it's just a dressing? <laughs> so, so his major league career ended in 82 when he was released by the Expos after staging a one-game walkout as a protest over Montreal's decision to release second baseman and his friend, Rodney Scott. <laughs> so now he's out of baseball. You think, okay, he's mildly interesting. So what's... No, yeah, nothing famous uh, uh, to okay, really so, write home So about. what's interesting about the guy, and, and, and he's written four books. Huh. Okay, so, yeah, right, that was my, the wrong stuff, which if you, you know, remember the right stuff, that was his play on that. Have Glove, Will Travel, the Little Red Sox book, a revisionist Red Sox history. Remember, the Red Sox hadn't won uh, since 1918 at that point. And Baseball Centrics, the most entertaining, outrageous, and unforgettable characters in the game. So he embraced. So he kind of took on, he, he took on his own persona in a sense and became a historian right, in that right, way. Right. So he served in the U.S. Army Reserves. For six years during the Vietnam War, and one of his jobs was to process dead soldiers from New England and call their families and say, you can come get whatever's left of your son. Wow. Okay, Dark. that's that's kind of interesting. That's a heck of a job. Okay, so so how did he get the nickname? So he personally earned popularity, as well as the nickname Spaceman, given to him by former Red Sox infielder John Kennedy. His outspoken manner and unfiltered comments were frequently recorded in the press He's, people didn't talk in the press that way at the time. So you have to think about the being outspoken. You know, you just didn't really say too much. He spoke in defense of Maoist China, Whoa. population control, Greenpeace, and school busing in Boston, among other things. He once berated an umpire for a controversial call in the 1975 World Series, threatening to bite off his ear and encouraging the American people to write letters demanding the game be replayed. So he was he was going to channel with full Mike Tyson. Full Mike Tyson, absolutely. When asked about his views on mandatory drug testing, Lee Crypt, I've tried just about all of them, but I wouldn't want to make it mandatory. <laughs> it's like some of these lines. You're like, there's just to have that the presence of mind to come right, up with right. that off the top of your head. Um, I mean, I, I guess you know, like if you're thinking that way, that's like 100 percent the sarcastic response that you give. You wish you could come up. Yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you wish you could come up with. Um, in his book, The Wrong Stuff, he claimed his marijuana use made him impervious to bus fumes while jogging to work at Fenway Park. Um, in 88, he and his second wife, Pamela, now, okay, here's where he's interesting, announced their plans to move to Burlington, Vermont. In 1987, he announced plans to run for president of the United States for the Rhinoceros Party, which necessitated the move. Wait, the Rhinoceros Party? He had to move to Vermont so he could join the Rhinoceros Party. Interesting. Since then, he's played mostly as a celebrity pitcher in games around the world. Um, in fact, my friend Dave Moriarty was in Arizona for one of these, you know, men's senior league, and there's Bill Lee showing up, and he's a part of this, so he's involved in all this stuff, uh, this kind of thing. And in 2010, he had a one-game contract with the Brockton Rocks 
a minor league team, pitching five and two-thirds innings and getting the win, becoming the oldest pro ever to be a winning pitcher in a pro game. He was 63 years old. Pretty impressive. So so this is a real oddball and yeah. odd duck. Now you kind of get an idea of why Bill Lee is, you know, so... He's famous in a yeah, sense. Yeah, because, exactly. you know, like... Like, especially, like, that last part is probably the most interesting, probably the most interesting thing about him, the fact that he came back at 63 and was able to pitch five innings in a minor league game. Because it's yeah. like, that wasn't like they trotted him out there for, like, a token batter right, or right. something. He pitched. Pitched five and two-thirds innings. I, I, you know, you probably have heard of the Ephus pitch. Yeah. When you, when you kind of lob it in over there. So he had a Lephus pitch. Right, because you know, yeah. and he had this lobby kind of you know sloppy pitch that would go in there that was effective. I remember seeing him throw that pitch; it worked. Oh yeah, it works. I mean, occasionally you give up a home run on it, but a lot of the time it works because it's so hard shock to, value. It, it, it's so hard to adjust to that much difference in speed, and especially if you're a major league player, I can't imagine you actually have had a lot of practice hitting forty mile an hour balls. Right, it's since you were like eight. So it's almost something you're not good at at that point. And it has a hump on it, right, when you mm-hmm. do that kind of stuff. So, you know, the different angle and all that. So, so uh, I kind of wanted to talk about, interestingly, another kind of out there guy. The anniversary of his famous game just kind of passed a couple weeks ago. And that would be Doc Ellis and his LSD home. Oh, yeah. LSD no It was like 50 years, right? I think. Uh, I, I, yeah, it was 50 years. 50 years. It was 50 yeah, years yeah. on June 19, 17. So 1970. Huh. And so... He played uh, – he was on the Pirates. He played San Francisco. He basically claims that when they flew down on the, – they flew down there. They had a day off on Thursday. And on that day off, he drove up from Los Angeles to visit his uh, girlfriend and another friend. And while they were staying there, they stayed up super late that night drinking and taking drugs. So the next morning, he's still thinking it's th- – this is all according to Ellis, but he still thinks it's Thursday at this point. So he wasn't supposed to pitch until the next day, so he took another hit of acid. He then realizes around 1 p.m. that he's scheduled to play the game. Was it wasn't then his girlfriend say, You're pitching today? And he's like, No, it was, no, his, it's not. It was his friend. His oh, friend was his friend. Was, okay. his friend was looking at the game. He's like, Aren't you scheduled to pitch today? And Doc Ellis was like, Excuse me? So he was starting the 6 p.m. game. So he races down to the field and somehow gets there on time. And he's completely kind of like out of his head at this point. He's saying, like, when he's out there, this is his exact words on what it was like pitching this game. I was zeroed in on the catcher's glove, but I didn't hit the glove too much. I remember hitting a couple of batters, and the bases were loaded two or three times. The ball was small sometimes. The ball was large sometimes. Sometimes I saw the catcher. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I tried to stare the hitter down and throw while I was looking at him, and other times I chewed my gum until it turned to powder. They say I had about three to four fielding chances. I remember diving out of the way of a ball I thought was a line drive. I jumped, but the ball wasn't hit hard and never reached me. So... In the later innings, he thought the – according to Ellis, in the later innings, he thought the home plate umpire was Richard Nixon. And at one point, he hallucinated that he was pitching to Jimi Hendrix, who was holding a guitar instead of a bat. Now, the thing with Ellis is he is known for telling tall tales. And while the initial part of his story seems pretty believable – We know that there's a good chance that Doc Ellis took LSD. 100%. That definitely (laughs) happened. But nobody's disputing that aspect of the story. But I think seeing Richard Nixon as the home plate umpire, seeing Jimi Hendrix up there, doesn't really track. Little urban legend. It's a little, yeah. The problem is, it's the kind of thing that you hear from people that haven't done LSD before and then think that's what happens. You don't 
all, everything from like the actual testimonies. You don't see stuff like that. You're not going to see completely things that aren't there. You're just going to see wildly distorted things of things that are there. So the first part matches up with that really well. He did pitch a no hitter. He did pitch a no hitter. <laughs> that definitely happened. And there's obviously there's back and forth on whether or not it was true or not. Uh, some people are saying that, you know, that the manager would have never stood for him showing up late. And nobody- Danny Murtaugh was the manager, I believe. Yeah, and that he would have never stood up for, like, Ellis showing up late to that game. He would have never tolerated it. And he certainly would not said anything to the reporters. No doubt. Because that was a thing. Nobody heard about that. So, but... I think it's way more interesting if it's oh, I, true. I, 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 I love that story. The same way, the same way, I totally believe Wells was hungover when he threw his perfect game because it just like you you have to choose at a certain point. Okay, you know what? It's a way more fun story if it's real. So I'm going to choose to believe it. There's another story I was thinking when you're telling uh, about uh, Ellis getting to the game. It was somewhere in the '80s, an Atlanta Braves pitcher named Pascal Perez. P a s c u a l Pascual Perez, hmm. and he got lost on the way to the ballpark, driving to the ballpark in Atlanta, and was driving around the loop around the stadium for like two hours. And he, I don't know if he got a ride late at the game or something like that, but for years he had that hung on him as this guy got lost driving to the ballpark. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then people also like just to go back to Ellis for a second. I remember one of the reporters was saying he interviewed Ellis after the game, and he was lucid or clear eyed and given off anything, but like. How much experience does that reporter have being around people on LSD? That's like what I always think. Because like, 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 if you don't know, you might totally mistake. You him. don't know. You don't know. You're not going to realize <laughs> and think of it unless he does something completely wacky. And most people's perception of wacky in that state is Ellis suddenly starts talking about pink elephants he's seeing in the room. And he's not just standing there being kind of quiet and weird for once. You might not think of anything in that. I don't know if the Pirates had those weird hats in, in, that, in that year, but I can kind of picture his hair coming out from under his his hat and whatnot, uh, you know, and that uh, Doc Ellis. He was a, a, a very good pitcher at that time, and, and the Pirates were a good team. Uh, and then later on, they got the sort of the conductor-type hats, the train conductor mm-hmm. hats, uh, it looked like. So, yeah, Doc Ellis, uh, you know, uh, I think he's, he's he's passed away now. He passed away in 2008. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good one. Um I want to talk about a guy that um, had a bunch of things that attributed to his career, and he had a long career in baseball, and a really interesting ones. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Bill Veck, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's spelled V E E C K, and that's important because he had an, a, a book written about him way back when called Veck as in wreck. You know, as in that's how you pronounce it because it would be weird to like V E E C. How do you pronounce that? Veck. So it's Bill Veck. So and Veck was at various times owner of the Indians, the Browns, and the Chicago White Sox. I mean, that's a lot of teams. Right. As an owner and president of the Indians in 1947, he signed Larry Doby. And Larry Doby was the first black player to be signed in the American League. That was the same year that Jackie Robinson came up mm-hmm. with the Dodgers. And this happened later that year. In the following year, the Indians won the World Series in 1948. In fact, that was the last time they won the World Series in so he, 1948. So he's still, you know, he was somebody that's important to Cleveland, certainly. But absolutely. And he was the last owner to purchase a baseball franchise without an independent fortune. So... After that, everybody was really – so he was able to put together investment groups and they said, okay, you know baseball, so we'll put this together. You're the owner, but he has all this money behind him, but it wasn't his money. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. Unable to compete in a new area of salary escalation ignited by arbitration and free agency, um, he sold his ownership interests after the 1980 White Sox season. So he got out and he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1981. Made to the Hall of Fame as an owner. I mean, that's not no small feat. What do you think so about we, it? So we talk about how he kind of came. I want to talk about how he came up. So he grows up and he worked as a popcorn vendor for the Cubs and a part-time concession salesman for the White Sox. So he's involved. 
1937, he comes up with the idea of planting ivy on the walls of Wrigley Field. Wow, that's that's. I mean, that's an a. That's I, I did the not guy, know if that. If you're the guy that put ivy on the walls in Wrigley, that is you are an indelible part of baseball history. Like you are important. So how does he get to become an owner? So in 1942, he tries to buy the Phillies. He later wrote in his memoirs that he intended to buy the Phillies and stock the team's roster with stars from the Negro Leagues. Interesting. So he was already thinking about another. That. He's this is an oddball, right? Yeah. It's an iconoclast. So although no former rules at that time barred African American players from the majors. None had appeared in organized baseball since the 1890s. I think that's really interesting. Vic quickly secured financing to buy the Phillies, agreed in principle to buy the team from Nugent, the owner, and while on his way to Philadelphia to close on the purchase, he decides to let the commissioner know, yep, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis again, the guy who was ruled on the 1919 Black Sox. So he's still commissioner. He's still commissioner. Wow. Okay. 30 years later, almost. So, Vec knew Landis was an ardent segregationist, but mm-hmm. he didn't believe Landis would dare say black players were unwelcome while blacks were fighting in World War II. However, when Vec arrived in Philly, he was surprised to discover the National League had taken over the Phillies and was seeking a new owner. The Phillies were ultimately sold to lumber baron William Cox. He so, didn't get it. So, he, he so, so the, the commissioner clearly found out what the plan was and, and, and scooped it out from under him. Correct. Correct. Um, in 46, he buys the Indians no, and whatnot. But then in 1949, the year after they win the World Series, his wife files for divorce. Apparently, she has the money, and he's forced to sell his ownership interest in the team. So now he, he doesn't – after he just won the World Series – He immediately is forced after out. After that, he's forced out of there. Um, so then he gets some funding, some guys together, and he buys the lowly St. Louis Browns in 1951. The Browns were a, a moribund uh, franchise for many years. So um, he's a promotion guy, as you can kind of tell. So here it goes. August 19th, 1951, the second game of a doubleheader, three foot seven and 65-pound Eddie Gatel comes up to pinch hit for the leadoff hitter in the White Sox in, in the bottom of the first. So he's – So think about the promotional aspect. So you got your you got your leadoff hitter. And it's like, okay, you know, calls him back to the dugout and out pops this three foot seven-inch guy with a plastic bat. Plastic, you've got a plastic bat, and he's got number one-eighth on his back. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. He goes to the plate, and he stands in there, and he takes a crouch. He gets a lean, you know, like a low crouch. Okay. Strike zone, like, two inches. You know, so, the pitcher is on the mound, and he's looking at the catcher, and the, and the catcher's like, what do we do? <laughs> so the, <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, you would have no idea. How, like, is, is this for real? So, is- so, he throws the first pitch. It goes, like, three feet over Gadel's head, and now he's laughing. The pitcher's laughing, and they just kind of throw through. And Gadel, you know, was, was instructed, don't if, I, if you swing the bat, I'm going to come out and kill you. <laughs> don't you dare swing the bat. Don't you? So, he, he takes his four pitches. Walks the he first. He runs down the first base. And they pull Pinch him. runner comes in. He slaps the guy in the rump, runs off the field, and never plays another game. Ah, oh, but he, you know what? He had a plate appearance. He had a plate appearance. <laughs> So and he um, got on base. He's got a career on base percentage of a thousand. <laughs> so that's the kind of guy Bill Veck was from a promotional standpoint. And, and he'll do anything. So, in fact, he did that because in 1976, now he owns the White Sox. Okay. Okay. And I don't know why it always happens in, in double headers, but the White Sox took the field in the first game of a double header, August 8th, 1976, wearing shorts. Wait, what? Yeah. There, you, can, you can see pictures of this if you look but, it up. Oh my god, that would be so bad! Right, right. Well, it, not only uh. not only is it bad for your legs if you how you slide if you're wearing shorts, uh. Uh, but but just to watch third I've baseman, done it. It's not fun, uh, right? Because you, if, you, if you're if you're loosening up for baseball or, or practicing, you might not wear pants, but you're not going to slide. That's for sure. Yeah. So they, and they they won the first game five to two. Okay, and so the, for the second game, they didn't come out with the shorts because they were like so embarrassed and so horrified. Apparently, they did. 
uh, wear the shorts another couple of times during that season. I'm maybe impressed that he was able to convince the players to, to wear, wear it again. Yeah, exactly. Like, I could understand once, and then they hated it so much they took it off. But you somehow were like, nah, you got to put them on a second and third time. So um, the last Bill Vec one uh, actually has something to do with his son. So his son, Mike Vec was promotions guy uh, for the White Sox. And three years later, on July 12, 1979, the White Sox hosted a promotion called Disco Demolition Night. This is legendary. Even right. I have heard of this, though I don't know the specifics. So apparently local Chicago uh, disc jockey Steve Dahl hated disco, right? This is after Saturday Night Fever. And so he's threatening to blow up some of his disco records. And the White Sox uh, and Vex says, hey, can we get in on this? This sounds fun. This sounds fun. So they decide to, you know, allow this to happen between games of a doubleheader. They're going to blow up a bunch of records in the outfield, on the outfield grass. So people are bringing discs to the game, and at various times, they are flinging these discs around, sort of like little, you know... Frisbees. Frisbees, but they're, they're discs, so they can they're, they're really do some damage. Yeah. So, um, and of course, they have a huge, they had 98 cent tickets to try to do this promotion, so they expected maybe 20,000 people to no. have 50,000 people with 20,000 waiting outside. Oh, God. So it's just a crazy situation. Um, and many of the records were not collected by the staff, and so the people kept on throwing, you know, these things around. So after he blew up the records, thousands of fans stormed the field and remained there until dispersed by riot police. Why'd they storm the field, though? Um, um, I guess they were just so excited about what like, happened it was just between like, games. It was just like It was just such a crazy and event. And it burned a big hole in the outfield. Well, yeah. They're going to blow something up. So Sparky Anderson is the manager of the Tigers. And he basically says, you know, we can't play. This is not a regulation major league field. And we're going to not play. And they said, so you have to play. And it turns out the league upheld the protest. And the Tigers won that game 9 and They forfeited the second game. Uh, and the... Um, Disco Demolition Night is one of the most extreme promotions in Major League history. Because I can't think of any others that have resulted in the protest of a game. Now, had that happened when they were wearing shorts, you'd have the full thing, yeah, right? That would be like <laughs> the ultimate Bill Vec moment. But Bill Vec, uh, just a guy to remember, there there are will never be another guy like that. That's for sure. No, you're never, that's never happening again, sir. But that he did integration into the league and he was on the forefront of bringing uh, you got It's interesting that it. you have that kind of dichotomy that he was so forward thinking in some respects that he was willing to go out. And be willing to put, you know, take the best players from the Negro League in 1942 and put them out in the majors. I mean, that was years before Jackie Robinson. Right, put a whole team out there. I just, I, just, I wish that would have happened. But then, but then he was also the kind of guy that would run shorts and disco demolition. Night. Well, you know, I guess you, not, not everything works, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so a lot of the stuff that we've done has just been weird and strange. But there hasn't really any been any feats mm. that have been kind of weird. So I wanted to talk about one because. I honestly believe it is something that will never happen again. Well, this would be good. So, in 1938, a young 24-year-old left uh, left-hander named Johnny Vandermeer basically did the impossible in some respects. He threw not one, but two no-hitters, and he didn't just throw them the same season. He threw them back-to-back games, which is wow. Yeah. I can't think of that will probably never happen again. I don't know if there's ever been a pitcher who had a no-hitter and a one-hitter. I I think there was one of those somewhat recently, Uh, actually. I think you might be right, but I'm just not sure. But I'm not 100% sure. But the way it goes is that he takes them out on June 11th at Cincinnati facing the Boston Bees, who apparently would later become the Braves. I certainly didn't know Well, they were the Braves the whole time. They just were nicknamed the Bees at the time. Interesting. Okay, yeah. And so... He faces them in a day game and no hitter. 
walks three, strikes out four, pretty workmanlike. Nothing mm. wasn't like dominant or anything. Now the interesting part is f- only four days later he heads over to Brooklyn to play the Dodgers. So three at days Ebbets. rest. Yes, three days rest. He's playing Brooklyn at Ebbets Field in the first night game in Brooklyn. Well, and interesting because uh, I think in '35 the Red Sox, uh, the, the Reds, played the first night game in Major League history. So, so even though that was not the first game that he pitched, it is the first game for, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And now, pretty big crowd actually, over thirty-eight thousand people for this game. So packed stadium, and he, you know they had a, t- a bunch of pregame promotion for this too. Babe Ruth came out before the game. Jesse Owens. Came oh, just because he the pitched the no hitter in the game before, which no, just no, happened to be a promotional because game. Because it was the first night game in oh, Brooklyn. Oh, of course, of course. So they're making it into this big spectacle. Now, Vandermeer takes the mound with no idea. He was just going out there to pitch. And all of a sudden, it's the ninth inning. He's got no no hits and two outs. And he's going to become an immortal. This is like legend. They knew it then. They knew it then. You don't do that. It and never happened before. So right? the, the, the. Or since. The shortstop of the Dodgers, Leo Drusher. DeRocher, yeah. DeRocher hits a ball deep to right field, and the crowd goes nuts because they think he's hit a home run and goes foul. Oh, I don't know this. Okay. And then the next pitch, he thinks he catches the corner for strike three, and it's called a ball. So Red Catcher, the Reds catcher was like so mad that he almost like got in the umpire's face about this. So he threw another one. Next pitch. Lazy fly ball to center field. Guy catches it. Two straight no-hitters. Wow. Never to be done again. That's interesting. And in good ninth inning stuff, I didn't yeah, know that about it. Yeah, especially final batter guy almost hits one out and just goes foul. And that is Think, Leo DeRocher. Yeah, thinks he paints the corner, called a ball. He almost got galarraga in a sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And DeRocher, you know, for baseball fans, you know, manager of the Giants, was the third base coach when Bobby Thompson rounded third, heading for home in the shot heard around the world in 1951 and managed the Cubs to the, to the, to the um, in the 1969 season when they lost to the he Mets. He did then go a start a nut in the next game against the Bees and went three and a third before giving up a hit. So he probably has, I wonder if he has the most cons- 21 plus consecutive innings hitless without- innings. I would think for a starting pitcher. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. That's right for a starting pitcher. Because a relief pitcher, I could see maybe doing that just because you put enough. Like, Although that'd be a lot of appearances for a relief pitcher yeah, to not be give up a hit. Pretty impressive, dude. Yeah, that, that'd be yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we'll have to check on that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to see if it's ever happened before. Well, I feel like I've talked a lot because I covered you know so much. So uh, maybe you've had another one for us. I got one last one. It's pretty short. And it's not even necessarily something that was strange that happened during Major League Baseball. It's actually something that happens before Major League Baseball. And I kind of like it because despite me hating this nickname, it is somebody that shares a name very similar to myself and Gordy Windhorn. Now, I don't know if you know who this is because he's a completely unremarkable player. I did. That was in Strange But True Baseball stories, yes, by was. the way. <laughs> yeah, I think he was a career 195 hitter. But what is interesting about Gordy Windhorn is how he made the Major Leagues. So... Back in the day, teams would have public tryouts. They would literally just say, hey, we're having a tryout for the Giants today. Come on down and see if you can show up. As a matter of fact, my dad, who grew up in Astoria um, with Whitey Ford, mm-hmm. um, uh, and Whitey would play stickball. You know, I can't imagine this with my dad when they were kids. And one day my dad says, everyone's like, hey, where's Whitey? And the other guys go, oh, he went to go get a tryout with the Yankees. Yeah, like that's never going to work out. <laughs> and so, yeah. So Gordy one day goes to the Giants tryout. With his friend, because his friend desperately wants to make their major leagues. And Gordy just kind of tags along because he didn't have anything better to do. So he's out. Now, the thing about Gordy is he was a track and field star in high school. So he's just running around in the outfield, shagging balls. And I guess they're so impressed 
with his speed and athleticism that they pick him to make the team. Well, I think I think I remember reading that he got up at bat. Now he had not really ever hit other than like in softball games and yeah. stuff like that. So the first pitch, he cracks a line drive to left field, and the other guy, his friend, is like, "What? What's up with this?" You know, and this guy, <laughs> and he's hitting line drives to the field. Like, All right, where'd you play? I don't. <laughs> and of course, the Giants are always thinking, "Do we just find our baseball Jesus?" Like this guy just wanders out of nowhere and is the natural. Now was entirely just a guy that could run really quickly. But this the idea that, like, one, I can't imagine what it would be like to be the friend. You're going there. You're, you're like, dreaming of major, major leagues. Your buddy just tags along for moral support. And then he just somehow shows up and makes the majors and you And don't. he gets a contract. Right? Yeah. I mean, that to get a contract at that time was just, like, so amazing and so important. But, yeah, like, I just – I can't imagine what it was like to be in that situation, to just show up at the the, the thing to be as, like, a, as a joke, basically. And then they're like, yeah, by the way, you want to play for us? Here's some money. We're going to have to go and find that book. I don't know if I have it somewhere in, in the basement though, or maybe go, go find it because there are some other really good stories. We could probably do a whole episode just on some of Furman Bishop's bizarre stories. If anybody is interesting about, interested, about four years ago, Bill James actually wrote an article on Strange But True Baseball Stories, and he listed out – a bunch of the stuff that has happened since then that would be included in it. So if you wanted an interesting thing to read, I highly recommend yeah, yeah, to check I, that I, article out. I do out. enjoy that kind of stuff. So, well, uh, that uh, does it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to subscribe to our podcast, we'd appreciate it at www.almostcooperstown.com.